Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast is from a sermon series I did on the Gospel of Luke. I hope you enjoy. Open them up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. It's page 745 in your pew Bibles. As we continue our study of the Gospel of Luke, what many of us sometimes fall asleep on is the fact that we have an enemy, an enemy of the church, an enemy of God's kingdom, an enemy of God's people. And one of the things that the enemy does, and the enemy, of course, is the devil, Satan, is that the enemy uses diversion. Uh, many of you are familiar with uh, D-Day and the great victory and, and, and the climactic battle in World War II. What people don't often realize is the fact that one of the big elements of D-Day was the fact that they had set up on, on, on other parts of France's shores enemy ta- tanks and all kinds of blown up artillery and blown up weapons to let the Nazis think that we're going to actually land over here. And that enabled the D-Day invasion to take place over in Normandy. I think the enemy does that the same thing. Uh, our enemy caused us to divert our attention in one direction when in reality he's fighting a war over here and now we're, we're asleep to it. For some of you, the second coming of Jesus Christ is maybe no big deal. You're like, I don't know what the Christians are talking about. What does this mean, etc. Let me kind of give some basic things uh, before we jump into Luke 21 that I think are essential fundamental elements of Christianity. First off, we begin the fact that there's only one God. A fundamental element of Christian belief is that there's only one God and that that one God is the God of love. That one God is a God of love has existed eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. They've existed eternally in a loving relationship with one another. That God, however, decided to create, and he created all things. And then he created humanity in his image, so that we ourselves could be in a loving relationship with him. We could enjoy and, and, and be blessed to, to be partakers of, of his gracious and his, his majesty and his splendor and, and all that he is. If God is so awesome and powerful and holy and wonderful, why not make some other beings who can enjoy who he is? So he makes humanity in his image. We were to reflect God's image and God's glory and make him known to the rest of creation by being in a loving relationship with God himself. But by being in a loving relationship with God himself, it means we must have freedom to choose. Are we going to love God or not? After all, love necessitates choice. We chose, of course, to choose self. We decided that we'll make ourselves God. We won't follow the one God of all creation. We'll make our own rules. We'll make ourselves God. But God didn't abandon us. He didn't leave us to our own ways. He decided to come after us and love us and chase us down. And so God came in, uh, in the humanity, in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, became the man, Jesus Christ. And he lived, and he died, and he rose again. That we might have the opportunity to choose once again whether or not we want to be in a loving relationship with the eternal God of of all creation. Jesus came along and brought about what we call the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, by its very essence, is God's presence amongst us. God's presence with us. And if we have faith and choose, indeed, to let him be Lord of lords and not ourselves, we can enter into a loving relationship with that eternal God of all creation. Now, by the time between the the coming of Jesus, which was 2,000 years ago almost, and the time of his return, which has been so far 1,980 some odd years, but between that time, uh, uh, humanity is being given this opportunity to choose, uh, to love him and to be in relationship with him, and, and, and to choose to have faith and trust in him. 
Someday, Christ will return. And that will mark the end. The return of Christ will be the time when Christ comes in totality. Death was defeated on the cross by Jesus, but death still exists. Sin was paid for on the cross by Jesus, but sin still exists. Suffering will be no more. There'll be no more mourning or strife or pain or death because Christ will come and put an end to all of evil and the kingdom of this world and establish in totality the kingdom of God. Thank you very much. Luke chapter 21, verse 5. Jesus says to some of his disciples were remarking, or Luke tells us that some, some of the disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and, and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, well, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? And he replied, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen, but the end will not come right away. Well, then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be great earthquakes and famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they're going to seize you and persecute you. They're going to hand you over to the synagogues and put you in prison and you'll be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how will you defend your, how you will defend yourselves. For I'm going to give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed by even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they'll put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. When you see Jerusalem, verse 20, Surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. For, the time is, uh, for this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. On earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world. For the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Verse 29. He told them this parable. Excuse me. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives, 
And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. If you were raised in Israel at the time of Jesus, the story that you would have been told as a child and throughout your entire life is, is simply this. The, the story of Israel was this. We are God's chosen people. God called Abraham, and we are descendants of Abraham. We're, we're, we are the race of God's people. Our God is the one true almighty God. And God has given us, the Jewish people, this land that we dwell in. The land of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and Galilee in the north. If we're obedient to our one God, he will bless us and let us stay in the land. God, however, in history, has allowed foreign nations to oppress us. Right? The last 2,000 years of Jewish history, up to the time of Jesus, starts with the Egyptians, and then the Assyrians, and the Babylonians, and, and then the Persians, and the Greeks, and then the, the Romans. It's, it's been a history of oppression. But that is simply because God has allowed these foreign nations to oppress us, most likely because of our disobedience and our sin. God's allowed these foreign nations to come in and, and punish us, to teach us to be obedient to Him. We are to trust God. And as long as we have our city and our temple, we are safe from destruction. Our city in Jerusalem and our temple, this is where our God resides. And he will be our protector. Someday, the Jewish world of, of Jesus' day taught, someday God will send his Christ, his Messiah, or his king. And that king will come and he will free us from foreign oppression. He will liberate us and he will establish our city and our people as the one true nation and he will punish the nations of the world. This is the story of the Jewish world at the time of Jesus. And it's into this world that Jesus begins to speak. Verse 5 again. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left upon another. Every one of them will be thrown down. The temple at the time of Jesus looks something like this. This is an, uh, uh, a model of, uh, of the city of Jerusalem and of the temple itself. As we mentioned the last few uh, times we've discussed, the temple faces to the east. It's elaborate adorned with this colonnade all around Sol called Solomon's Portico. Most likely when Jesus is teaching every day during the week, it's, during, it's in one of these little covered patios here. This is the royal store, a marketplace, and a massive elaborate structure. You see, back in the day, a man named Herod the Great became the king of Jerusalem. The Romans allowed Herod to be the, to be the king, and, and Herod was a powerful, powerful man. 20, 30, 40 years before the time of Jesus now we're talking about. Uh, in the year 20 B.C., Herod wanted the Jewish people to accept him as a Jewish king. I am the king that, you, that you're looking for. I'm this promised king, and I'm going to liberate you. I'm a Jewish king. And Herod actually had some argument for being Jewish. The problem that Herod had, however, was that he had been building temples all around the Roman world. One of the reasons why Caesar gave Herod the, the kingship over Jerusalem and Judea was because Herod had been doing favors for Caesar all over the Roman world. And he built temples. And the Jews went, went and said, you can't be a Jewish king and build pagan temples. So Herod said, I know what I'll do. I'll build you the best temple of them all. The Jews, their temple, if you recall, had been destroyed back at the, uh, just after the prophecy of Jeremiah. Uh, in the 6th century B.C., the temple, 586 B.C., the temple was destroyed. It's what we call Solomon's Temple. About 70 years after Solomon's Temple was destroyed, in the year 516, 515 B.C., the Jews came back to the land and they rebuilt the temple. 
So 516 BC, they rebuilt the temple. But in all reality, all they built was like a building, a little hut, a box. I mean, we got to build the temple, but they were more concerned about building their own houses and about rebuilding Jerusalem. And so they gave God a box. It wasn't anything special. It wasn't anything spectacular. So Herod comes along 500 years later in the year 20 BC, and he says, I know what I'll do. I'll make your temple the most glorious of all the temples in the world. And it was. Now, some of you might be familiar with the statement in John 2 where Jesus tells the, the, the Jewish people, he says, destroy this temple and, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews look at Jesus and they say, it took us 46 years to build this temple. And in three days you're going to raise it up? And John says, well, the temple Jesus was speaking of was his body. He was saying, I'm the temple of God and destroy this temple and I'm going to resurrect myself in three days. But note the statement, it took us 46 years you see, Jesus perhaps said this in the year 26 A.D. And in 20 B.C., Herod began adorning, elaborating, and rebuilding this temple. In fact, by the way, in the year 26 A.D., they were actually still constructing it. They didn't actually finish this model. They didn't finish this structure until the year 63 A.D. For 83 years, they were building and elaborating and adorning this temple, this structure. And that's to which Jesus says, do you see this structure? I'm going to tell you that one stone is going to be left upon another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Chapter 19, a few weeks ago, we looked at this passage, and Jesus says, the days will come, verse 43, when your enemy will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They're going to dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus says, the days are coming because they, you missed the coming of Christ. We looked at this last week. Uh, Jesus says, you missed the time of the coming of the king and the things that make for peace. You missed it. The king has come. It's me. And you missed it. And because of you, the fact that you missed me, and of course most of the Israelites, especially the Pharisees and the leaders, rejected Jesus and they have him crucified. And Jesus says, because of that, your temple is going down. Your temple is going to be destroyed. If we look at the Gospel of Mark, and we'll look in a couple weeks when we discuss the crucifixion of Jesus, we'll note that the primary accusation the Jewish leaders made to get Jesus crucified was he spoke against the temple. They don't know exactly what he's talking about, but they get an idea. He's talking about this temple coming down, and this is our house. This is where our God dwells. We, the story of Israel, we are God's chosen people. God gave us this land. He gave us this temple, and he dwells in it, and we are safe. And then Jesus comes along and says, guess what? You missed the hour of my coming, and you missed the things that make for peace. You are supposed to be a light to the nations. You are supposed to bring the people of the world in and, and let them enjoy my presence as well. And you missed it. And because of that, your temple is coming down. So back to Luke 21, the disciples say, Jesus, uh, teacher, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign about when they're about to take place? So Jesus goes on to say, verse 8, Watch out that you're not deceived. Many are going to come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is near. Don't follow them. You can hear wars and uprisings. Don't be frightened. These things must happen first. But the end will not come right away. Well, then he said, nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes, famines, pestilence in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. 
first thing Jesus does is he warns his disciples, do not be deceived. Watch out that you are not deceived. Be careful. False prophets and false Christs are going to come along and they're going to say, I am he. Now, mind you, the disciples don't understand exactly what's going on. Because in the disciples' mind, Jesus is going to be that king who's going to establish his throne in Jerusalem and defeat the Romans. And Jesus is coming along saying, look, Romans are not our enemies. Our enemy is the devil. It's the devil who opposes my work. It's the devil who's going to get me crucified. But they don't understand this. So Jesus is explaining to them, look, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again, but I'm going to leave. And then here's what's going to happen for you. There's going to be a period of time that's going to go by. Jerusalem's not going to be destroyed right away. There's going to be time for the people in Jerusalem to repent. I'm going to give them more time, and you're going to proclaim the gospel to them. You're, you're going to tell them what, what, what's going on. But watch out, because in that time after I leave and before Jerusalem's destroyed, there are going to be false prophets and false Christ saying, I'm here, I'm there, I'm, I'm, and don't believe them. There'll be nation against nation and, and, and wars. These are, are just the normal course of events that, all, that are all, there's always war, there's always famines, there's always, those things are going to continue to transpire. So watch out. And then he says, verse 12, but by the way, the next thing that's going to happen is they're going to seize you and persecute you. They're going to hand you over to the synagogues. They're going to put you in prison. And you'll be brought before kings and governors, all on account of my name. And you'll bear testimony to me. So Jesus is explaining this like, I'm going to leave, and you're going to go proclaim the gospel to the nations. But they're not always going to like it. And they're going to put you in prison. And they're going to persecute you. Now imagine, by the way, if Jesus doesn't tell the disciples this stuff. They're expecting Jesus to become the king in Jerusalem and to establish his kingdom. Remember a little earlier, James and John said, Hey, Jesus, you know, can we sit on your right and on your left when you get to Jerusalem? You know, can, can we have like the positions of power? And Jesus like, you have no idea what you're asking for, do you? Because on his right and on his left were two other people getting crucified. You don't know what you're at, but they don't understand what's going on. So imagine if he never told them, oh, by the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave for a while. I'll give you my spirit. It'll be, all, it'll be great. But I'm going to leave for a while. And he never told them about the persecutions and sufferings they were going to endure. They're going like, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. Because we thought when the Messiah comes, he's going to establish his kingdom, and we're going to reign and rule, and all the enemies will be slaughtered. And guess what's happening? We're suffering. We're enduring persecution. We're in prison. Our parents are betraying us. Our brothers, our sisters, our husbands, our, our wives. This is not going well. It's important that Jesus explains to them what's going on. Then he says in verse 20, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you'll know that its desolation is near. It's kind of like a no-brainer, by the way, when you see the Romans encircling the, encircling the city of, of Jerusalem. You know, guess what? Now's the time. But if you're a Jewish person in the first century, remember their story. Their story that they were told is, Jerusalem is God's holy city that he gave to us. And the temple is where God dwells. It's not able to be destroyed. It's indestructible. So it's important that Jesus explains this to his disciples. Because if the disciples just continue along, okay, we're going to suffer and all that good stuff, but Jerusalem's God's holy city and he won't let it be destroyed, then when the Romans surround it, surround it what are the disciples going to do? They're going to defend it. And Jesus is explaining to his disciples, look, I'm sorry. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. 
because Jerusalem did not recognize the hour of the coming of the Christ and because they did not recognize the things that make for peace, it's going to be destroyed. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, that's when it's about to happen and get out of town. Now, the death of Jesus, is in the, I believe, was in the year 30 A.D. Some say 33. It's okay if they're wrong. It's not a problem. Um, just kidding. All right. 30 or 33 A.D. is the year for the death of Jesus. In the year 66 A.D., the Romans began the onslaught of the city of Jerusalem. The Roman armies began to encircle the city. Now, it took them four years only because the emperor died. And eventually, Rome sent Titus, the new general, the son of the emperor. And Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70 AD. When you see it's surrounded, I am not going to protect the city. Leave. Let those who are in Judea flee. Let those who are in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. He goes on to say it's going to be dreadful for pregnant women and nursing mothers. In the Matthew's Gospel it says, pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath. Because in the Jewish world you can only travel three quarters of a mile on the Sabbath. Any, walking any farther than three quarters of a mile is violating the Sabbath day principle of, of thou shalt not work. It's called a Sabbath day's journey. If Rome encircles you on the Sabbath day and you've got to flee, you're not going to get out far enough. Pray that it doesn't happen in the Sabbath. Or even in the winter when it's hard to walk through the, the hills and the mud and the, and the muck and the mire. Then in verse 25, Jesus seems to change topics. And again, it's, I think it's clear in Matthew's Gospel what we're doing Luke today, uh, uh, this last year, so we'll stay in Luke. Verse 25, there'll be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. On earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and the tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what, of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they'll see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Now, this can be a more, more convoluted thing, and I'm going to keep it simple for the sake of, uh, of, uh, of what we're doing this morning. It seems as though Jesus now has transitioned to the time of his return, of his coming. In verse 29, he seems to indicate to go back now to the topic of the destruction of Jerusalem. Remember, the disciples said, when is it going to happen? And now Jesus is going to answer the question, when it's going to happen. And he says this. He tells them a parable, verse 29. Look at the fig tree and, and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. If Jesus has gone back to, this, to, to the conversation about the destruction of Jerusalem, he seems to be saying this, look at the fig tree. Now, the fig tree in prophecy and literature refers to the to people of Israel, the state of Israel, the, the, the nation. Watch it carefully. When's it going to happen? Well, first thing I want you to know is this. Don't be deceived because sometime's going to go by. There'll be wars and rumors of wars. There'll be famines and earthquakes and pestilence in various places. You're going to be persecuted and thrown into prison. And the synagogues, they're going to, they're going to kick you out. They're going to do all these things against you. Your parents and your brothers and sisters and your spouses will betray you. But be faithful. Now, here's when it's going to happen. Here's how you know it's going to happen. That is when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you know that its destruction is near. Now, when's it going to happen? Well, here's what I'm going to tell you. 
When you look at the fig tree, you know that summer's near. You know, it starts to, to sprout those leaves and the, the, the pagim is what they're called, little, little things that become uh, 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 figs. Uh, when, when that sprouts, you know it's April. You know June's coming. I tell you, he says, this generation will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but this generation will not pass away. Now, a biblical generation is 40 years, and I think it's significant. Jesus dies in year 30. Rome destroys Jerusalem in 70. It's exactly what he said. Forty years later, Jerusalem is destroyed. Exactly one generation. He goes on to tell his disciples, Be careful, verse 34, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day will close in on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. The time between Jesus' words and the end, let's just say the time between the, his words and the end is a time of testing, a time of trial, a time of tribulation, a, a, a time where we're called to, to bear witness to the nations, but in doing so, we may well suffer at the hands of the nations, and so we may go, I don't like this suffering thing, I'm out. Be careful. Don't give in. You need to escape all that's about to happen so that you can stand before the Son of Man. What does this mean for us today? Well, first thing is this. The church has, for the last 2,000 years, had many, many predictions about the second coming of Christ. I have 29 pages of predictions of the second coming of Jesus in the history of the church. Sorry, but I'm, I'm getting old. In the year 365, the French bishop Hilary of Poitiers announced that the end of the world would happen during that year. 375, French bishop Martin of Tours said that Christ would return in the year 400. He said, quote, there's no doubt that the Antichrist has already been born. Firmly established already in his early years, he will, after reaching maturity, achieve the supreme power. In the year 500, three different men predicted that Jesus would return that year. One of them was predicting predictions based on the dimensions of, the, of Noah's Ark. The dimensions of Noah's Ark was leading them to a sign that Jesus was going to return in the year 500. And we go on. 500, 800, 799, 847, 1000, 1033, 1290, 1368, 1528, 1533, 1600, 1624. And we go on, and we go on, and we go on. 29 pages. And that's just all that Wikipedia could find out. I'm sure there's a lot more. We've had in our lifetimes many people, Harold Camping and his predictions. The year 2000, for those of you that were around, and Y2K, and all the things that are going to end the world. In my opinion, Satan is good at diversion. He's good at causing us to look over here while the battle's going on over there. Many Christians today look at the television and the news for wars and rumors of wars because we're excited when war takes place because it's a sign that Jesus is going to return back. Sorry, folks, I don't know where Jesus ever got excited that war was taking place. He condemned the Jewish people because they don't know the things that make for peace. Jesus cries at warfare. And yet somehow the church gets excited because war is a sign of his, of his coming. No, we're called to be the peacemakers. 
Blessed are those. First point I want to make is this. We are called to live as if today were the last day, and yet to be prepared that it's not. We're called to live as if today were the last day, yet we are to be prepared that it's not. My time is up. Just kidding. Uh, let me give you three reasons why I believe Jesus is delaying his the time of his return. Why has Christ delayed the time of his return? Let me give you three reasons. Number one, he wants all to come to repentance. The biblical story that I started off with is a story about a God of all creation, who's a God of love, who's holy and all-powerful and transcendent, and yet he created us because he desires us to share his beauty and his majesty and his glory and to be in a loving relationship with him. Now, that loving relationship demands faith and, and demands uh, freedom. We must choose to be in a loving relationship back with him, and we chose to follow self and to abandon God and make ourselves God and to walk away. And God says, you know what? I'm not going to let, let you walk away. I'm going to give you another chance. And Christ is, enters into the story to live, die, and rise again that we might be redeemed. Why has Jesus waited 2,000 years and still counting to come back? Because he wants the nations to repent. 2 Peter 3 that we read earlier in the service. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I said earlier in the service, I said, you know, what if I were to say that our wanting of the second coming of Christ is actually an, a matter of selfishness? And it is. It's understandable. We're suffering. We, we, we don't want death any longer. We don't want suffering any longer. We don't want pain any longer. We don't want starvation and strife. We want all those things to go away. And when Christ returns, they're all going to go away. But then all those who we know, our loved ones, our siblings, our sons and daughters, our parents, our friends, who don't know Jesus will never know Jesus. If Christ returns today, that's it. It's over. There's no more time for repentance. And God is not slow in keeping his promises. He's patient. He's not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. A second reason why I believe Christ is delaying the time of his return is because there's a, there's a certain amount of suffering that God's people must endure, uh, uh, endure. This one's not an exciting one, by the way. The first one, we're like, oh, that, okay, I can kind of get along with that one. I, I'm glad Christ is delaying his return because I know someone that doesn't know Christ. But really, we've got to suffer more? He's waiting for us to endure suffering before he comes back? Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. In this apocalyptic vision, John says, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. The souls of righteous men and women who have gone before us are under God's altar, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long are you going to wait till you come back? And there was given each one of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. God's answer is, I'm sorry, I can't come back yet. Not all God's people who are going to be martyred or killed for the sake of the kingdom have been killed yet. It doesn't seem to make sense as much as the first one does, but nonetheless, we'll move on. A third reason is because of the holiness of God's people must reach its peak. The holiness of God's people must reach its peak. We also read 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 earlier in the service. Peter says, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, 
What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day and speed its coming. Note carefully. 2 Peter chapter 3 that we read earlier in the service. The Lord's not slow in keeping His promises as some count slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Oh, where is this coming that He promised? Ever since the beginning of, our, of, of time, everything goes on as it has since the beginning, the mockers are saying. And Peter says, no, you're forgetting a lot of stuff there. But God's not slow in keeping His promises. He wants everyone to be, come to repentance. Now, since it's going to happen this way, what sort of people ought you to be? Well, you ought to live holy lives. And it says, and hasten its coming, or speed its coming. Note carefully that if the church lives holy lives, according to Peter, we can speed the coming of Christ up. We can bring it about sooner. Christ's coming will happen when the church is living holy lives. Now let's put all three of these together. If we live holy lives, Christ will come back sooner because... And living holy lives, we're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. And in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations, the nations will persecute God's people. Persecution happens because we proclaim Jesus is Lord, and there, and there's no Caesar is Lord. Like, sorry, Caesar is not Lord. <laughs> so, okay, I die. The church dies and suffers because it proclaims that Jesus is Lord in the midst of a hostile world. Living godly and holy lives means proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and suffering for it, but it also means the nations are converted because they listen to our witness. In other words, Christ will return when the church gets its act together, when the church does its job, when the church is faithful in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what Satan has us doing? Looking over there at the news for wars and rumors of wars. Oh, cool, yes, it's, it's coming soon. We read the newspapers and there's earthquakes and there's floods and there's a, a, horrible, a horrible hurricane. feel bad for those people in the, in the south part of the United States. But this is a sign Jesus is coming back because the world's getting worse and worse and worse. We're excited because all this decay and stuff is happening. Sitting back passively when Scripture says if we're actually being active, engaged in the mission of God's people, proclaiming peace and righteousness and justice, and that Jesus is Lord and persevering and suffering for it. Jesus will come back. You see, Satan's delaying the inevitable. He's got us diverted, thinking the war's over here. When the war's over here. So yes, we long for Jesus' return. We long for the day of his coming. We long for the day when there's no more starving children and wars and desolation and earthquakes and hurricanes. But at the same time, that's kind of a selfish want. It's not a bad one. It's understandable. How long, O oh Lord, until you avenge our, our blood? How long, O oh Lord, would you come back? Paul even ends, ends, ends the book of 1 Corinthians with Maranatha. Come, O oh Lord. But at the same time, I have family members that don't know Jesus Christ. And so do you. And we have neighbors and co-workers and people in our community and people around the world. And we, God's people, are called to bear witness to Jesus Christ and to suffer and to persevere and to endure in holiness. And then I'll come. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Over the next several weeks, as we continue our study in Luke chapter 22 and 23 and 24, and we make our way to the cross, we're going to be overwhelmed with the story of love. Because we kind of know what love is like in this world, but we can't even fathom going to a cross when you're innocent for the sake of somebody else. And yet you did that for us. And then you rose again and defeated death. And it's that proof of the resurrection, that the trust in what you have done that we cling to. And it reminds us that there's a day when you're coming back in fullness. When death will be no more. No more mourning, crying, or sickness, or pain. The old will be put away, and behold, everything will be made new. And Lord, we long for that day. But this morning we're confronted with the reality that that day comes when we, God's people, your people, are faithful in proclaiming the gospel, are faithful in living holy lives. We can speed your coming. And in doing so, the nations might know our loved ones, our siblings, our friends, our neighbors, our parents, our relatives, our co-workers. Oh Lord, help us. Help us to be equipped to speak the words of truth in humility, with compassion. Help us to live godly and holy lives in the midst of our workplaces, in the midst of our neighborhoods, in the midst of our communities, in the midst of Thanksgiving dinners with family. Help us to be righteous and faithful and humble. And as a result, Lord, we pray that you would open their eyes, our brothers and sisters, our moms and dads, our sons and daughters, our our relatives, our co-workers, our families, our, our friends, open their eyes that they can see Jesus, that they might come to know peace and joy and meaning and value and purpose in life, that you have bestowed it, and it comes by knowing you. Help us to share the joy of knowing you with them. And at the same time, we say, speed your coming, because we know that, well, brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are suffering this day and being beheaded. We thank you for the pastor that's been released from Turkey. And we rejoice. But, Lord, there are many others. We pray, Father, for their strength, that they might endure and persevere. Watch out, you told us. Hold fast. Keep watch. Help us, Lord, to do that. Help us to do that first off in this community here, Northminster Presbyterian Church, and then whatever community we're listening to online, whatever community we're part of, and then help us to do that as the congregation of God's people around the world. We thank you and praise you for your mercy and your grace. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.